afternoon. Our um, scripture reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to focus primarily on verses 5 through 10. Though I'll read the whole chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, on page 1175 in your pew Bibles, this second letter that Paul writes to the church under the cross in Thessalonica, saying, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we also ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will um, read that in connection with question answer 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 880 in the back of your hymnals on Christ's return to judge the living and the dead, um, a theme that intersects not only with that passage in 2 Thessalonians, but also with what we heard this morning from Psalm 7. So we'll read question answer 52 responsively. It asks, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven." Congregation, as we look at um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 4 that he, Silas, and Timothy uh, boast about these Thessalonian Christians in all the churches because of their steadfastness in the faith 
and in all of their persecutions and afflictions. And so already in these, these first couple of verses, we see that this is a church who knows suffering. You might remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, when uh, Paul and Silas first came to this city, it says that the Jews became jealous and, and they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of one of the believers, of Jason, uh, dragged him and some of the other Christians out before the city authorities and said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. And, and Jason has received them and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And it says that the people of that city were disturbed when they heard this. And so as we're reading through the New Testament, that's our, our first introduction to Thessalonica, a church that Paul now writes to um, for the second time and, and says, we know how you're continuing to suffer. We know of your steadfastness and, and faith in all your persecutions and in the affliction that you are continuing to endure. And he says, we're proud of you. We boast about you in all the churches, for this is evidence, he says, verse 5, of the righteous judgment of God, that you are worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. Maybe remember back in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul said, it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom. Now, Paul is saying the same thing here. You are suffering for the sake of the gospel you are suffering for the sake of, of the king who your leaders in Thessalonica hate, and we're proud of you. We consider you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, and not only will you enter into that kingdom in its fullness on the other side of your suffering, not only will this cross lead to a crown, but he says we also want you to know that the righteous judgment of God will be manifest against those who afflict you. It's a little bit like what we heard this morning from Psalm 7, where the Lord comforts his suffering saints with the knowledge that God does not look the other way at the affliction of his people, but is a God who feels righteous indignation every day. And so that's the point that Paul begins to make in, in verses 6 through 9, that, that part of the full coming of Christ's kingdom will be the coming of the king in judgment. And in the midst of their faithful affliction, which, which proves that they are, are worthy partakers of that kingdom, he seeks to comfort them with the knowledge of the full coming of that kingdom at the return of Jesus Christ, the judge, to judge the living and the dead. So that's the subject of these opening verses, the same subject as Lord's Day 19, where Paul sets before them three things. These are our three points, which not in the, in the bulletin, but uh, Paul sets before them first the coming of the king as judge. And second, he sets before them the coming of the king as a comfort. And then third, the coming of the king as our joy. Because when he comes on that day, the king will not only return as judge, but will also take us to himself into the joy and glory of the new heavens the new earth. And so that's, that's what uh, Paul sets before us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and our catechism in Lord's Day 19. And so look first at the coming of our king 
as judge. You see this in verse uh, 6 through 8. We see it also in verse 9, where Paul says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict his people. So we think about how this connects with what we heard this morning from Psalm 7, where at the end of that psalm, the king actually leads us in, in giving thanks and praising God for his righteousness, which in that psalm is shown in him bending his bow and wetting his sword against those who do not repent of taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's the exact same thing that these Thessalonian persecutors are doing. That's why in the book of Acts, a place like Acts chapter 4, the the church actually takes up the Psalms to pray to God and and speak of of, uh, how he will bring judgment against those who persecute his people. That's why Christ in Acts chapter 9 could say to Saul, why are you persecuting me as Saul actually was persecuting Christ's people? Because Christ is so united to his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. And so even as the Davidic king could say that those who rend him in pieces like a lion and and tear his soul apart, who falsely accuse him and seek to lay his crown in the dust, as, as we heard this morning in Psalm 7, even as the king could say that they would be judged and violence, Genesis chapter 3, would descend on their own skull, Paul says the same thing about those who persecute these Christians to whom he writes. He comforts them with the same justice that we heard of this morning. In fact, um, Pastor Peter Holtfluer in his his, uh, work on the Psalms has said that when we pray these types of Psalms, we are praying ultimately for the coming of Christ. He says, salvation for God's people cannot fully come unless the holy wrath of the Lamb is poured out on the sworn enemies of God. For such an end, Jesus taught us to yearn When we pray, thy kingdom come. He says, as much as Jesus graciously bore the curse of God against the sins of his chosen people for their salvation, this same Savior has been given the task of justly judging those who hate God and reject his Christ with everlasting judgment. Just as Christ has a great love for his church, so he has a holy wrath for his unrelenting enemies. And just as David found comfort in that truth this morning in Psalm 7 so that his, his lament was able to turn to praise as he reflected on that truth, so Paul knows that the church in Thessalonica needs to hear that those who torment them will stand before God. He says in verse 7 that this is good news, that it's a relief to them. Lord's Day 19 says it's a comfort. And we'll get to that in a moment. Um, think about how this is a comfort, but before we consider the comfort of this doctrine, we need to understand what it is that Paul says about it. And in these couple of verses here in 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, Paul says at least three things about the coming of Christ as judge. He says, um, first of all, that Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So second, that he will inflict vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel. And he says third, that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
to first that Christ will be revealed from heaven. This is related to what we considered last week in the Ascension. Remember where as Jesus went up into heaven, those two angels said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. He will come again from heaven. So that's what Paul is speaking of. And now he adds that he will come with his mighty angels. He will come with his mighty angels in order to display the glory of his great kingdom. And it says that he will come with fire, which is a symbol elsewhere in the scriptures for the presence, the presence of the holy wrath of God. In fact, we heard it this morning in Psalm 7 where it says that he has prepared his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And so he will come from heaven with the glory of his kingdom and his presence, at least for some, will be a presence of wrath. Which Paul now details as as he gets to his second point that he will inflict vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel. This is the royal office of Christ the King being executed. He is the one who comes in judgment against all those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. And so implied in this is a call for all who who are listening, all who are reading this in Thessalonica, all who are, are listening here this afternoon to obey the gospel. To repent of your sins and believe that Jesus is the Christ who died for those sins and rose again to to do what David said this morning and repent of your opposition to the king and know him now as Lord or you will know him then as judge. He will inflict vengeance on all who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. And third, Paul says that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And that word um, presence there is uh, actually the, the Greek word for face or countenance. So this is the, the fulfillment of God's threat by the prophet Ezekiel that he will turn his face away from them. Um, John Piper describes this as the exact opposite of that blessing from Numbers chapter 6 where it says the Lord will make his face shine toward you and he will lift up his countenance upon you. It says that's the exact opposite of what happens in hell. There, the gracious countenance of God does not shine upon them, but there is in hell an everlasting frown of disapproving justice. His beauty will not be seen or known. His fellowship will not be enjoyed. His relief and mercy will not be experienced. But it will be everlasting destruction. Um, Calvin says an undying death, destruction without end. And, and it's, its duration, the fact that this is not speaking of some kind of annihilation where uh, those there cease to exist, but, but the fact uh, that it is indeed eternal can be seen in the fact that it has the glory of Christ as its opposite, which has no end. So this is what Paul tells us about the coming of the king as judge. It will be terrifying. It's, it's sobering just to speak about. It's not easy even to listen and consider. 
And so it's very striking that Paul is able to speak of this as good news for anyone. As, as something that will bring God's people, verse 7, relief and comfort. Something that flows from that grace and peace to you greeting, verses 1 and 2. How could this possibly be good news? I just want to think now about the coming of the king as a comfort. Well, certainly not a comfort to those who know not God and obey not the gospel. Those who hate the king and take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. But if you look at our church's confession in Lord's Day 19, what we just read together in the very language of the question, it says that it's a comfort to God's people. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Remember all the way back in Lord's Day 1, we're introduced to that theme of gospel comfort. And and you can follow that theme like a thread all the way throughout the catechism. And what, what you're seeing here in Lord's Day 19 is that this is no exception. This is, this is good news. And I would suggest to you that it's a comfort in, in two ways. It's a comfort, first of all, in that when Christ comes as judge, he will not come to condemn us. But in fact, he will deliver us from his wrath. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, um, how could a most merciful prince destroy his own people? How could the head disperse its own members? How could the advocate condemn his own clients? No, the judge is, question answer 52, the very one who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. The king who will come as judge is also my priest and advocate who has stood in my place. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The coming of the King is good news because he will not come to condemn us, but to deliver us. Then the second reason why it's good news is because when he comes to deliver his people, part of what he delivers them from is not just His wrath, but verse 6, the affliction of those who afflict them. He says in verse 7 that he will grant relief to those who are afflicted. And this is exactly what Lord's Day 19 is getting at when it says, In all distress and persecution, I confidently await the very judge who will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation. This is what brought David comfort in Psalm 7 this morning. Or 1 Peter 2, Christ on the cross, who entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Here too, as Paul writes to this church under the cross, he is seeking to lift their eyes and their heads heavenward. He's he's seeking to lift their gaze upward to, to look to that same hope that David did this morning. When the unjust verdict of the world and and the persecution that flows from it will be overturned at the coming of Christ by God's declaration that his saints are in the right and their tormentors are in the wrong. G.K. Beale says the world's unrighteous verdict declared against God's people will be reversed in their favor when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Our Belgian Confession says the same in Article 37. It says, with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful 
to wicked and evil people, but is a very pleasant and great comfort to the righteous and elect. Since their total redemption will then be accomplished and they will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered, their innocence will be openly recognized by all and they will see the vengeance that God will bring and the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. And the Son of God will confess their names and all tears will be wiped from their eyes and their cause at present condemned as heretical and evil will be acknowledged as the very cause of the Son of God. Do you see how the coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead is good news? Do you see how the coming of Christ to vindicate his people is good news? As we heard this morning, it's, it's good news for the persecuted church. It's good news for those who suffer unjustly. It's, it's good news for those who do not see justice in this life. Not because we delight in the pain of the punished for itself, but we delight in the justice of God and the righteousness of Christ. We delight, John Piper has said, that this is not a universe where evil triumphs, but where every wrong will be set right, either by the condemnation of the cross or by just recompense in hell. We take heart and rejoice that we do not bear the burden of needing to avenge ourselves, but are glad that we can defer the impossible weight of settling all accounts. The coming just judgment of God brings to our souls even now a liberation from from grudge holding and from the poisonous burden of revenge. There is a, a sense in which for the Thessalonians this good news of God setting all things right actually frees them to love their enemies. That's the point that Paul makes in Philippians chapter four when he says, let your gentleness be known to all, the Lord is at hand. Or Romans chapter 12, that because vengeance is God's and he will repay, we are unable to love our enemies. Longing for the coming of the king to bring justice does not mean that we hate those who hurt us. But as Calvin said, the ruin of the wicked may be lawfully looked forward to with desire, provided there reigns in our hearts a pure and duly regulated zeal for God. There is no feeling of inordinate desire. This is the same thing that we said this morning. As David prays, thy kingdom come, as he prays for God to bring justice, at the same time he says, Lord, search my heart and and search my mind. See if there is any wicked way within me. Any spirit of vengeance and vindictiveness. And so long as there is not, we may long for this justice. We may find comfort in this justice. Coming of the king is a comfort because it will prove, despite the doubts that we may sometimes have, you read through the Psalms, despite the doubts that the psalmist has in in Psalm 89 or or Psalm 73 or Psalm 77, he looks around and sees the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. The, The coming of the king is a comfort because it will prove, despite those doubts that we sometimes have, that this world is not a world where evil triumphs. But every wrong will be made right. And Paul wants for us to see that in verses 6 through 9. Then notice he doesn't stop there. But he goes on in verse 10 to speak also of the coming of the king as our joy. 
which is the last thing we want to consider this afternoon, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. The coming of the king is not just the comfort because of the justice there will be, but because of the joy and the glory that we will enter into. That's the same place Lord's Day 19 ends when it says, he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of, of the new heavens and new earth. And Calvin calls this the crowning and choice consolation of the pious, that when the Son of God will manifest, it will be manifest in the glory of his kingdom, he will gather them into that same fellowship with himself. And though now they are exposed to the reproaches of the world and looked upon as vile and worthless, then they will be precious and full of dignity when Christ pours forth his glory on them. And Calvin says the end of this is this, that the pious may, as it were, with closed eyes, pursue the brief journey of this life, having their minds always fixed on the future manifestation of Christ's kingdom. For to what purpose does he make mention of his coming in power, but in order that they might leap forward in hope to that blessed resurrection? Paul wants to encourage them not only with the hope of justice, but ultimately with the hope of glory, where we will marvel at him who has saved us from our sins, who has set his affection upon us, and who will come again to usher in that blessed hope. Where verse 9, we will not be away from the face of the Lord and from his glory, but his eternal smile will be upon us in the face of his Son. And Paul, in the midst of the suffering of this life, wants to encourage them with that hope that their groaning will give way to glory. Their sadness will give way to the sweet smile of the Son of God upon them forever. This promise, he says in verse 10, is for all who have believed. For these Thessalonian Christians who suffer under the persecution of those who afflict them, For you who suffer from slander, sickness, sorrow, and grief. For all who in this veil of tears set their hope on the coming of the king in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, we confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in your place and removed the whole curse from you and will cast all his enemies and yours into everlasting condemnation, but take you and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. This promise, Paul says, is for all who believe. Who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who lived and obeyed and suffered and died in your place and then was raised to God's right hand from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. To all who believe that belongs the promise of verse 10. Even to Thessalonian persecutors who once hated the gospel as Paul had. Even to those who were enemies of the cross, but then repent and believe the promise of verse 10 and the promise of Lord's Day 19 is for you. And so as we, we consider these, these six or so short verses in the middle of First Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, the Lord by his spirit through the Apostle Paul is calling us to believe on Christ, 
to long for his appearing, to love his appearing, and to live in light of it, not bearing in ourselves the burden of making all things right, but looking to the judge who will come again and make all things right. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we have heard now twice about the sufferings and trials that your people often experience as we are united to Christ and share in his suffering. We thank you for the promise that all will be well, every wrong will be made right, and your suffering saints will share in that same glory of your Son. Lord, we pray especially for our persecuted brothers and sisters, those like the church in Thessalonica, that you would encourage suffering saints with the hope of justice and the hope of kingdom come. So that with uplifted head, they would long for the coming of the king and that even those who at present hate the kingdom of your son and torment your people would be struck by their meekness and their gentleness and repent and believe the gospel so that this same hope might be theirs, so that they would not suffer away from your face forever, but would enjoy the the sweet, eternal smile of the Son of God upon them. Lord, we pray that you would make that uh, their hope and ours, and we pray that that same hope would compel us to share and proclaim this gospel so that those who would otherwise suffer the torment of which this passage speaks might receive your grace as your judgment is directed towards your son. Lord, we pray that as we think about and continue to process these things that we have heard today, that you would grant us humility. But we do pray, Lord, in the midst of the suffering of this world and as we pray for the church all throughout it, that you would give us comfort in knowing that you would make all things right. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.